0: Mayo Clinic presents
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.
0: Welcome to Always on EM, a show dedicated to emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. I am Venk Bellamkonda. I co-host the show with the amazing Alex Finch. Today, we are bringing one of our capstone presentations by the superstar senior resident, Dr. Dougie Moss. The talk is called Chartonomics 2023 best practices for documentation to get reimbursed. Certainly, this talk will be very focused on the system of charting expected in the United States, though some of the principles and information will be applicable globally. To get started, Dr. Neha Rocker will be providing the introduction. Let's take our seat.
2: My name is Dr. Neha Rocker, and I am pleased to introduce to you today our speaker, Dr. Douglas Moss. Dr. Moss is a third-year emergency medicine resident here at the Mayo Clinic. He completed his medical school at the Chicago Medical School where he was inducted into the Gold Humanism Honor Society. During his time in residency, Dr. Moss has been involved with National A.S.A.P., where he sits on the Emergency Medicine Practice Committee. He played a significant role in the creation of ASEP's recommendation regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is Mayo Clinic's representative, resident representative on the Minnesota ASAP Board of Directors and is currently participating in Mayo's Leadership Academy for Residents. Next academic year, Dr. Moss will be returning to Chicago to pursue an administrative fellowship at the University of Chicago, where he will also be obtaining his master's in business administration at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. During his time here in Rochester, our patient experience team tells me his name has been mentioned positively more often than anyone else, including consultants, since his arrival. And I think anyone who knows Dougie is not surprised by this fact. Today, we are fortunate to have him lead us through a discussion, and in my mind, it's a discussion we need to have more often. How to get appropriately reimbursed for the work that we do. In private practice, your salary and bonuses will be tied to your ability to document. This is obviously a skill that will be quickly cultivated. However, even in academic medicine, we always say, without a margin, there is no mission. And having a margin helps us to have the time and resources to do the things that we love to do and to advance the science to help generations of patients. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Moss. And I do hope each of us walks away with one or two pearls.
1: Thank you. I did send Dr. Rocker a little paragraph to read about myself. And let me tell you, most of that was all her. So thank you for those kind words. So as Dr. Rocker explained, my name is Doug um, third-year EM resident. And yeah, I will be going, um, I will be pursuing an administrative fellowship next year at the University of Chicago, um, getting my MBA with that as well. And so I chose a topic that I personally didn't know that much about. And I figured that maybe some of you didn't know that much about as well. So I hope that we really can all learn something today. Um, I do want to give a special shout out to Tyler, Brendan Carr, Neha Rocker, Heather Heaton, Derek Jones, and Daniel Cabrera. Okay, before I begin, I really just wanted to give a special shout out to Tyler. He has been so helpful with this presentation. Um, he's provided me with a lot of insights and graphs and information and stuff that I've never even knew about for our charts so you'll get to see some of that throughout the presentation as well so Tyler is our ED operations manager he's a coding and documentation specialist he sits on the ED finance committee he's an administrative partner in the health system and truly he's just an awesome person so I highly recommend that you guys reach out to him and meet him so agenda for today Um, we're first going to talk about why charting is important we're briefly going to touch upon the 2023 ED Evaluation and Management Guidelines. We're going to go through a quick course of Billing 101, the provider's edition, and then we're going to discuss the future of charting. And I do ask, do ask that if you have questions, you hold it till the end. Thank you. And I'd be happy to answer questions at the end too. Okay. So why is charting important? So to start us off lightly, we will talk about why charting is important. Um, we will be doing this through various memes. So first is communication. And I just want to explain this one because my mom did not understand this. So here we have a man asking Swami to show him the future of communication. And after seeing our emojis that we use, he goes, I don't really want to know. So I thought it was funny, but my mom literally did not get it. (laughs) Next is billing. And of course, this is so we can continue to receive revenue and um, continue caring for our patients. So (laughs) there's medical legal protection. Um, which can be essential in court, our charts essentially become the main objective piece of data. We have QI, research, and I'll give you just a second to read this, utilization management. And just to explain, this is a frequent flyer to the ED named Norm, and everyone knows Norm. So by, um, by assessing utilization management, we can really help these special patients of ours. And lastly, and what I think is very important is burnout. Okay, so why is charting important? Another reason why is because of something called the 21st Century Cures Act. So the 21st Century Cures Act was signed in 2016 by former President Barack Obama to accelerate the discovery, development, and delivery of 21st Century Cures. But in addition to this, this was actually ratified in 2021, and it now includes the ability for patients to actually see their charts that we write on them. Um, So to make this example, I wanted to share a chart of mine. So this is when I presented to the ED um, last year and was found to have appendicitis. So you can see, read the chief complaint, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting times 14 hours, diffuse abdominal pain. Patient felt he ate too many snacks in bed and woke up with a stomach ache. So, yep, that was was the chief complaint before being diagnosed with um, appendicitis. In a recent study... 20% 20% of patients included identified errors in their notes, with more than 40% perceiving these errors as serious, such as an improper diagnosis, or even the or even written for the wrong patient. So it really is important that we nail down these charts. So thinking, knowing that patients can see our charts, I wanted to reach out to an expert to see how she recommends that we can chart conscientiously. And our expert here is Dr. Rocker. <laughs> So Dr. Rocker says, try to avoid derogatory language. So words such as morbid obesity, poor historian, non-compliant, the patient can see these words and they may be offended by it. So instead, use supportive language, something like an elevated BMI, or history is limited due to altered mental status, or that they have challenges with adherence. Try to avoid confusing abbreviations such as SOB, PRN, I guess, yeah, SOB in other words, not so good. Um, PRN and PO. Instead, write it out in simple language, shortness of breath, as needed, and by mouth. Um, try to avoid alarming differentials without context. So things, if you're going to write in your chart like cancer or heart attack, just be cognizant of that. Um, and then instead, provide adequate context. So you can say you considered cancer, although the CT was negative. You considered heart attack, although the cardiac workup was reassuring. So the bottom line here is if you wouldn't say it to the patient, don't chart it. And another piece of advice that Dr. Rocker had shared with me, which I want to share with all of you is to something that she says capture the crazy. If a patient says things that are weird or inappropriate, make sure to include it in your note. That way, people have a sense of an of the environment that you are practicing in at that time, if it does come up again. So trivia time, what do these all have in common?
0: This is Vank jumping in. At this point, Dr. Moss shows a slide that has a picture of Michael Jordan wearing the number 45, Tom Hanks playing Forrest Gump sitting on a bench, the cover of Toy Story the movie, a PlayStation device, and um, presumably taken from social media of one of our chief residents with a caption that says, My day started with a penis fracture and ended with an intubation after multiple other codes. Today was the reason I chose
1: E.M. 1992? That was close, but still a very impressive guess. So, yeah, the hint is what year? year, The year is 1995. So Michael Jordan, this was the year that he returned from retirement and sported the 45. Um, Forrest Gump, this was when the movie was awarded the best picture of the year. And Tom Hanks won the um, best actor of the year. Toy Story, this is the year that it was released as the first fully-length animated film. And then I just want to read this out because it's so funny. This is the year that Dr. Sutherland was born. And here she shares with us, my day started with a penis fracture and ended with an intubation after multiple other codes. Today was the reason I chose EM. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. So the reason I highlight the year 1995 is because this was the last time that the documentation guidelines for billing was changed since Dr. Sutherland was born so for many of us this is all we've ever known but now it's different well as of last year it's different so here you can see the old charting guidelines that we may remember Um, this includes those um, classic 4-hpi the 10 review of systems the full physical exam as well as the MDM so this was all proposed by CMS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services the new guidelines however were proposed by the American Medical Association with input from emergency medicine. It's so simple, right? Doesn't just look so much more easy. (laughs) So here again, is the enlarged one page document put out by ASEP that discusses how charts are coded. Take notes of the numbers on the left. Um, The 99281 to 85 These correlate with the level of billing. So the last number is kind of what the chart gets billed at. So a 99281 is a level one, and a 99285 is a level five. On top, you can see that there are three categories that dictate the level of billing. We will go through each of them momentarily. So the new 2023 guidelines. So what they say is that um, you only need to include an HPI as medically relevant, and that the MDM is the sole focus of the billing. What also changed was that level 3 charts, which required a moderate level of MDM in 2022 and prior, now only require a low level of MDM. This shift virtually eliminated the level 1 chart and turned the level 2 chart into a level 3 chart. What does this mean for us? Well, this allows us to capture reimbursement that is more reflective of the care that we are delivering. In the past, We often wouldn't qualify for the Level 2 or Level 3 charts because of a failure to record a certain number of review of systems or physical exam elements, even though we are addressing a Level 2 or Level 3 situation. Now, the charting requirements are more synchronized to the current presentation and less about collecting less helpful number of review of system items or physical exam findings. Don't worry, we will discuss more about billing in a little. First, let's take a look at the criteria for billing at each level. So by demonstrating this, I wanted to use some patient examples and some familiar faces. Um, so I'm going to introduce our patients. So first, we have the adorable and excellent Ellie. Then we have the lamenting Loprinzi, And then finally, we have Sneaky Steven. And he clearly is up to no good. Here you can see that he's trying to escape from north as a psych patient. So criteria one. Um, there, This is the number and complexity of problems addressed. It includes the categories minimal, low, moderate, and high. We can actually ignore the minimal and low because a patient coming to the ED places them in at least a moderate category versus, let's say, a primary care office. So here you can see moderate. Um, it's one or more chronic illness with exacerbation or one acute illness with systemic symptoms. Sounds like every patient that we have, right? Exactly. The high level, on the other hand, is one or more chronic illness with severe exacerbation or one acute one acute or chronic illness that poses threat to life or bodily function. Again, sounds like a lot of the patients that we see. So now you can see why we really bill highly with the moderates and the highs. So let's go through a few examples here. So we'll bring back Ellie. Um, she came in with a chief complaint. and fact, uh, these are all fiction. Okay. Um, she came in with a chief complaint of a cough. She has no past medical history. She was tachypnic at 45 and was febrile at 102.1 Fahrenheit. Ultimately, she was diagnosed with RSV bronchiolitis as well as dehydration. So let's see what category she would fit into. This would be moderate. This is one acute illness with systemic symptoms. Now, Lamenting Loprinzi. She came in with chest pain and shortness of breath. She has a history of heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. Of course, not true though. Um, her pressures are a little bit soft and her potassium's a little bit low. She was ultimately diagnosed with a subsegmental pulmonary embolism as well as an acute kidney injury. Let's see where this falls in. So this is high. This is one acute or chronic illness or injury that poses a threat to life or body function. And one thing I just want to point out is that the final diagnosis does not matter. What matters is... The consideration that you gave throughout the differential so if you really thought that this could have been a heart attack then it'll get billed as essentially a heart attack um, but if it ends up just being some chest wall tenderness again same thing as long as you documented your concern for the patient so now we have sneaky steven he's coming in for a psyche eval. he's got a history of depression anxiety and bipolar and of course if you know steven it all checks out Um, Throughout the encounter, he was very agitated. Ultimately, he was diagnosed with psychosis. Can anyone guess where this would fit in? Okay. Well, the answer is it can kind of fit in anywhere. Um, And this is one thing that I wanted to point out is that the coders get our charts, and then it's their job to determine where these fall in. So depending on how you present this patient in your chart, they may choose any one of these. So again, if you're really concerned about this patient, or you think that this is a very high acuity issue, then document it, because then it may be billed as a high versus a moderate. Now let's look at criteria number two, the amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed. As you can see, there are three categories, limited, moderate, and high. Although daunting at first, you'll see that each category actually builds on each other. In Limited, you need to satisfy at least one category, which includes two items from tests and documents, such as review of external notes or results, or ordering of a unique test. Category two is assessment requiring an independent historian. So if you document an independent historian, you automatically achieve Limited. For Moderate, you need to satisfy one of the three categories. Category one includes three items from tests, documents, and an independent historian. Category two is independent interpretation of tests. Category three is discussion of management or test interpretation. So if you interpret a test or discussed patient management with a non-ED colleague, you automatically achieve a moderate level. Fortunately, extensive is the same as moderate, but two categories need to be satisfied instead of one. Now let's go through a few examples again using our same patients. First is the Adorable Ellie. History was provided by our very own Dr. Sarah Havesi. We also obtained a viral swab which came back positive for RSV. This would meet criteria for limited because we utilize an independent historian. Make sure that the level of charting is reflective of the care provided. For example, if you review documentation from an outside source, such as a recent PCP encounter, and document this in your chart, this could have met moderate level criteria. Next is Lamenting Loprinzi. She underwent a cardiac workup with Cardiac Labs. We also looked back and found a recent echo from 2022 showing an ejection fraction of 58%. We also independently interpreted her EKG. Prior to obtaining a CT angio of the chest, we spoke with radiology and gave approval of proceeding despite an elevated creatinine. This workup would meet criteria for extensive because we reviewed the echo from 2022, we interpreted the EKG independently and we discussed patient care with radiology. We ended up meeting all three criteria for extensive. However, only two out of the three are required for this level of billing. Lastly is Sneaky Steven. History was provided by EMS because he was agitated and unable to provide his own history. We obtained psych labs and also had psychiatry evaluate the patient. They determined that he was holdable. This would also meet criteria for extensive because we ordered unique tests, which were the psych labs, We utilized an independent historian, which was EMS in this case. And lastly, we discussed management with psychiatry. Okay, so now on to the last criteria. Um, We have the risk of complications and or morbidity or mortality of patient management. Um, Here you can see risks from minimal to high. This includes how you did or even did not manage the patient. Um, Important to note here is that if you considered something but didn't do it, such as a CT scan or even admission, it counts as long as you document your decision making. So minimal, there really were no examples provided. Low, you can see an extremity x-ray or OTC meds given or an ACE wrap, superficial bandage. And then in the moderate category, any discussion about prescription management, whether it's starting them on a new prescription or telling them to hold their prescription, um, that counts. Um, minor procedures as well as their risk, such as a lack repair, um, the social determinants of health, if you order a CT non-con or chest X-ray, IV fluids, and then a rigid splinter cast. And now we move on to the high category of risk. Um, Here, these are major procedures, such as a crash intubation or a crash central line, um, as well as the risk discussed with it. So again, even if you did not perform the crash intubation, if you documented that you considered it and there was rationale behind it, then you can still bill essentially at the high level. Um, but other things include discussions about hospitalization, if you discuss de-escalation of care, if you administer controlled substances, contrast, moderate sedation, anticoagulation, and restraints. Um, And then I just quickly want to note here that you can see that there's red and black bullets here. Uh, The black bullets are ones that were actually recommended by the AMA in their um, guidelines that we actually abide by. And then ASAP interpreted the guidelines themselves and added what was in red to make this more relevant to emergency medicine. So adorable Ellie here, she got some Tylenol and was ultimately discharged home. So this would fall into your low risk because she got OTC meds. So we could say that we considered admission because you remember she was tachypnic and she was febrile. However, after giving Tylenol and some supportive care, um, her issues resolved and was ultimately discharged home. And then, yeah, so by discussing hospitalization, theoretically, we could build this as a high risk for this category. So back to Loprenzi. She got IV fluids. She got a CTA, acute chest. And because she was found to have that PE, she was started on Eliquis. And she was ultimately discharged home. But again, we did consider admission, although her PESI score indicated that she was low risk. So we felt comfortable with her going home. So she would fall mainly into the high risk category. We did give IV fluids from the moderate. And we discussed hospitalization in the high-risk, but again, she was still discharged home. Um, we administered contrast, and we started her on Eliquis. And now we have Sneaky Steve. Sneaky Steve is housing challenged. He required IM midazolam and also soft restraints because he was very, very agitated. So where does this fall in? So we have um, the... Moderate category for the social determinants of health. So if you ever include a social determinant of health, then you automatically get billed at a moderate. But we went above that here, and we administered IM midazolam, and we put him in restraints. And after that, he did very well, just so you all know. And he reconstituted and was discharged home. So just to kind of recap here. So Ellie, we said that she was a moderate level for complexity, limited for data, and low for risk this would be billed at a level three. Whereas in the prior 2022 and, and before then, this probably would have been a level two billing. So this was very helpful in this situation. Um, and what I highlighted in red, just want you to remember that if you review external notes or labs, that gets bumped up. And then if you discuss hospitalization, that gets bumped up. Next is Loprenzi. Um, She scored high on the complexity because she had a life-threatening illness. And again, it's not the fact that she had a PE, it's the fact that we considered all the scary things, heart attack, PE, dissection, those are all life-threatening. Um, the data reviewed is also high. We obtained those cardiac labs, we got an echo, we interpreted her EKG, and we discussed with radiology. Her risk was also high. She got the CTA, she started on Eliquis, we discussed escalation of her care even though she was discharged home. This is built out a level five. And then last, we have Sneaky Steven. Um, and as I said before, a lot of this is open to interpretation from the coders. So was this an acute illness versus a severe exacerbation versus life threatening? Depending on how you document it, that's how it will be interpreted. So it could have been moderate or high. But for Steven, though, we he scored high in both other categories. So ultimately was billed at a level five. And we mentioned housing insecurity um, and that automatically classifies him for a moderate. But we went above that with the imidazolam and their strains. And in order to bill at a certain level two out of the three categories need to be satisfied okay so takeaways here if a patient is complex and you are worried about them document it for example chest pain in an elderly patient with a history of coronary artery disease and prior mi that's very scary however if it's a pediatric patient with chest wall tenderness not quite as scary Um, and then include your review of outside records, your independent historians, your independent interpretations, and discussion with any other professionals. And I started this here because any other professionals is very broad. This can include things such as pharmacy, social work, if you called the SNF to see if the patient can return back, or even if you talked to poison control. These would all count. And then lastly, for criteria three, if you thought about something or discussed it, but you didn't actually do it, make sure you document it so next i turned to another expert and i asked her what her main tip about charting and epic is so our expert here is dr heaton what she wanted you guys all to know today was something called note bloat note bloat is the accumulation of excessive or redundant information within notes documents or databases this results in reduced clarity which obscure main points making it difficult for readers to discern what's essential Wasted time. Sorting through redundant or necessary information can waste time for both the author and the reader. And three, increase errors. With more data to manage, there's a higher likelihood of errors. Misinformation, outdated information, conflicting details, etc. So here, note bloat. What's important here? I have no idea. Sure, some of the things are highlighted in red, but are those even that important? Versus something like this. A couple sentences that does a really nice job of summarizing what's important so the white count was elevated with neutrophil predominance we will proceed to ct Um, bmp unremarkable low mag will replete and then lfts grossly stable from baseline much more concise so now let's move on now that we understand um all about the billing requirements let's talk about medical billing and coding but for providers okay So why are the new documentation guidelines important? 83% of revenue, as you can see here, is obtained from our charting. And again, those charts are the 99281s to the 85s, representing the level at which they were billed at. The remainder of revenue comes from procedures and critical care, but these are far less significant. Okay, and I would not be able to get through this talk without talking about the RVU, something that I did not know what it meant before researching this. So the RVU is a relative value unit that is a a measure of a provider's productivity. It incorporates the provider's time, skill, training, and intensity. The amount of RVUs for every task that a provider does is determined by a committee called the RUC, that is the Relative Value Scale Update Committee, and they are through the American Medical Association. So CMS and private insurance companies, they typically accept these values and then place dollar amounts to the value of one RVU. So CMS determined that this year that one RVU would be about $33.06. And then any commercial insurer typically values their one RVU at anywhere from $55 to $70. So you can now see why some specialties and private practices cap the amount of Medicare patients. This is not something that we can do in the emergency department due to EMTALA. So let's drill down on the 2023 RVUs. Now that you understand what an RVU is, let's explore the true value of an RVU. So here you can see on the bottom the codes 99281 to 99285, as well as all the way on the right is the 99291. 99291, which I'm sure the providers in the room know, this is your critical care time. And this would be billed the highest. a level three is reimbursed around $77, with a level five being billed around $172. That's a $100 difference per chart. So if you multiply that by the patient seen per day, per year, it's a substantial amount of money, and it all is in the way that we chart. Okay, so let's look at national trends and see how the um geography of, of our charting has changed before and after these new guidelines. So this is the national trend again. Um, When comparing 2022 and 2023, the number of level three charts has decreased. The number of level four charts has increased, which is what it pretty much sought out to do. Um, But unfortunately here, the number of level five charts has also decreased. Several hospitals have actually lost revenue due to these billing changes. So Mayo, you can see similarly, Um, that we also had a decrease in level 3 charting. Um, We also had a decrease in level 4 charting, which is different from the national trends. But what is most important is that we had a substantial increase in billing for level 5 charts, and that makes up for the difference of last year um, with the level 3s and level 4s. Everything we're not billing at those levels, we're billing at a level 5." We may not have been great at collecting review of system and physical exam elements for the sake of billing and charting in the past. however. With this new model, and its heavy focus on pertinent decision-making elements, it is allowing us to more appropriately get reimbursed for the complex patients we are serving. This is why we are seeing fewer level 3 and 4 charts and an increase in level 5 charts. This creates more synergy with the care we are delivering. Have you ever wondered how much your hard work is worth? (laughs) Well, let's break it down. So a study that I'd read indicated that (laughs) providers on average see about 2.1 patients per hour. Multiply that for us, eight hours per shift, and then five, on average, about five RVUs per patient. And remember, we're going to multiply this by the um, conversion factor for Medicare and also for commercial insurance. When you do that, that comes out to be about three to $6,000 per shift. This number may seem low to you, but this does not include the cost of several things that are built separately, such as labs, imaging, and consultation services. Now, what's your procedure time worth? So here you can see some of the most common procedures done in the emergency department. Um, A short arm splint, for example, reimbursed at around $40. An A-line, $45. Simple lap repair, $45. An IO, $57. A lumbar puncture, something that we think is pretty time intensive and takes a lot of skill, $62. Packing and nosebleed, $77. (laughs) A simple incision and drainage, $105. A cardioversion with all the sedation, only $106. An endotracheal intubation, $140. A chest tube, $156. CPR, $182. And now I'd like to point out, this is ortho. This is a shoulder reduction, which we do in the ED. They get reimbursed $335. You don't call them exactly so that could be our reimbursement as well and also when you if you do go into private practice where they reimburse you based on rvus people know the secrets of this and they will actively seek out procedures such as this because they're easy for the most part sometimes um and they reimburse at a very high rate up a teller reduction i mean this is as simple as pushing a <laughs> the back in. This is $357 versus us setting up for an incubation or setting up for a cardioversion. Then lastly, a Kali's fracture reduction $531. If you're wondering why orthopedics have such high RVUs associated with their procedures, the answer is, I don't really know. Um, There's been some speculation that the orthopedists do a very good job of advocating for themselves on that RUC committee through AMA which is maybe why they have such um, high RVUs. However, if anyone else has any other thoughts, I'd love to hear that after my presentation. So billing 101, documentation to dollars. So this was the name of my presentation, um, and this more or less ties it all together here. So now that you understand the value of an RVU, let's explore how money is actually made. Thank you. I'm good too, thank you for asking. Um, so it starts in the ED at the bedside. During an encounter, we examine the patient, we complete procedures, such as that guy who's dabbing after an intubation, um, this gentleman who needs a lac repair, and then this really delightful abscess that's being incised and drained. So from there, we go back to our computers and we chart. We chart what we did, we chart the length of the lac repair, um, we chart how far the tube in was at the teeth, how many attempts it took. Um, and then once we finish charting, it goes on to a third-party coder called Logic's Health. Interestingly, we are one of the only departments in all of Mayo that send our information to a third party for coding. Every other specialty and every other place in the hospital, they have internal Mayo coders to do it for them. As to the reason why I'm not sure I think perhaps it might do be due to our like large acuity um, and all the charts that we have to go through. Um, Again, if anyone has information on this, please do feel free to share at the end. So um, logics will then determine how many RVUs be generated. This will then be submitted to CMS or to private health insurers um, and then again, it will be reimbursed at these rates. And then ultimately, it comes back to Mayo and we can afford things like the Bold Forward campaign. So Mayo docs are salaried, but you can now see why some hospitals or private practices reimbursed do- doctors based on the RVUs that they generate. Okay, so now, not the most exciting topic, but still important to discuss, is about charting deficiencies. How many of you in the room have ever received a request from someone indicating that your chart has been deficient like if you didn't complete it on time and they want you to complete it or if they're requesting clarification on something (coughs) probably all of you yeah yeah exactly probably all of you um can anyone guess how many charts were deficient in the ed on a random day in december who thinks that it would be more than a hundred Who thinks it would be more than 500? The answer is 521 charts deficient on this day. How about Mayo-wide? Who thinks that it would be more than or less than 5,000? Who thinks it would be more than 5,000? Okay. Well, the answer is about 3,900. And now when we um, think about how these deficient charts, how they affect revenue at that time, um, they actually are able to tell us how much money we are holding up in revenue based on these deficient charts. So would anyone like to venture a guess how much these 521 charts are holding us back in revenue? And if no one wants to guess, we can also play another little game here, okay? Who thinks it is less than 500,000? What about more than 500,000? Does anyone think it's more than a million dollars? Close. The answer for this particular day was nine hundred eighty-nine thousand dollars. How about Mayo Wide? Remember, this includes several specialties. This could be neurosurgery. You know some of these really, really big hitter, big hitters here. Um. So give me a thumbs up if you think that this is going to be more than ten million. Thumbs down if it's less than $10 The answer, $26 million in held revenue. I just want to emphasize, though, that this is held revenue. This revenue will eventually be returned to us once the charting deficiencies are resolved. But this is why we get so many reminders about getting our charts done. Um, As impressive as these numbers are, I was curious why charting deficiencies really are that bad considering that this revenue would be returned to us eventually. So that's when I turned to another one of our experts. And this is my new good friend, Tyler. I asked Tyler, why should we care about charting deficiencies? He shared that the first and most important reason is that this is a lapse in patient care. In other words, he made me look like a piece of like a, like a piece of crap because I should have considered that. But yes, that's the most important reason beyond that. Once a chart has been deficient for four days, on their back end, there's substantially more work required to reconcile. So after four days, the charts automatically get sent to Logics, and then Logics goes through it. They see what's deficient, and then they send it back to the providers. And that's when you have to click those boxes like not my patient or completed by a different service or provider. And that's all what they have to do because we didn't uh, get it done in time. And then charts that remain deficient may end up being built as is which definitely decreases potential revenue. And then lastly, after 30 days, a provider's travel days can be suspended if they fail to complete documentation. So make sure to get your documentation done. Okay, we're getting towards the end here, guys. Thank you for bearing with me. So as I shared at the beginning, one important reason that charting is so important is because it contributes to an overwhelmingly high proportion of burnout as demonstrated in several studies and surveys. Before we conclude, I want to briefly touch on a fascinating aspect of charting that will hopefully bring about some excitement and optimism. That is the future of charting. So the future of charting. AI, the era of AI, is among us. So I want you to envision a patient encounter, such as one like this. Now imagine that there are several tiny little microphones all around the room listening to the encounter. This is something known as ambient listening. What happens next is that what was transcribed through these microphones, it gets dictated here. So here in this encounter, you can see that the patient says, hi, doctor, hi, Jack, how are you? I have been having chest pain. Sorry to hear, when did it start? Last night, got worse over time. Upper left chest area. He denied shortness of breath, dizziness or nausea. Um, and then it turns it into this chart that's formatted as an HPI. And it does a pretty good job of it as well. So as you can see, this is pretty cool. I mean, we this is virtually our medical scribes. But beyond that, it doesn't stop there. There are already efforts underway to have AI assist with medical decision-making, with triaging, with interpreting our images, with writing personalized discharge instructions, and to even help with billing and coding. I mean, how easy would it be for an AI system to go through our chart, bill it automatically, and then we're able to see how many RVUs we generated without having to go through a third party like Logic's Health. So who is paving the way? So while this may seem like the distant future, ambient listening is already being used today. There are several key stakeholders paving the way and applications that are already available. Some of these include big hitters, such as Microsoft, who partnered with their company Nuance, and Nuance is the creators of the Dragon Dictation Service, and they made something called DAX Copilot, which they say is AI-automated clinical notes in seconds. So on, this, on their website, they claim that the positive impact on care delivery is a seven-minute saved per encounter, which reduces documentation time by 50%. 70 percent report a uh, decrease in feelings of burnout and fatigue three of four physicians state that the dax improves their documentation quality and 85 percent of patients say that their physician is more personable and conversational next is google google partnered with a company called Suki or Suki ai They created, and the Sookie AI is a product that they they partnered with and um, already released. They're claiming that the documentation time can be reduced by 72%. Another big hitter is Amazon's HealthScribe. This was only just announced a few months ago, with not many details behind it. Um, However, it is currently only being tested for internal medicine and orthopedics. There are several other startups that are offering products, such as Augmedics and Abridge, Startups with generative AI solutions and healthcare delivery have collectively earned more than $20 billion in funding. So you can bet that this is gonna keep moving forward and hopefully moving forward at a fast rate. Um, while there is significant progress being made, there are also significantly crucial issues with AI. And I will just touch on a few of them briefly. So first, there's issues with data privacy and security. I mean how many people will feel comfortable having their entire medical documentation through a third party software i don't know i mean i know that people do respect their privacy though um also the security aspect how can this be so secure that it's cannot be breached and there can't be you know a large malware attack that releases all this information and it's really private information as well um additionally medical legal considerations so you get sued it stinks But as the provider, you say, hey, you know, I was just doing what AI told me to do. What happens then? I mean, is it AI's fault and who do we sue then? Or is it the provider's fault, even though they were just listening to the AI guidelines, which maybe we were supposed to do? So it's very, very dicey. Um, And then lastly, there's a large issue with bias. Generative AI is trained based on information that has already been published. Much of this information is written with biases, whether it be towards the ages, towards towards people of different socioeconomic statuses, et cetera. Um, there is a risk that AI can propagate these biases as it learns about all the prior data. So I wanted to turn to two final experts because this was a burning question in my mind. And it's, will charting ever become completely automated? So first, Dr. Jones, I asked him this question. He tells me that the technology exists but there is a need to align these technologies with user acceptance testing to support medical documentation. Furthermore, there is significant potential to use these technologies to train cognitive models, including custom generative AI models that synthesize ambient clues, including speech and video for computer assisted workups and evaluations. I know that was a lot, but he says here, I envision a future where humans and machines are increasingly aligned in support of delivering outstanding patient care. The next expert, Dr. Cabrera. He says that this is unlikely in the short term, as sensors and data sources are not going to be approved anytime soon. Initial work, even at Mayo, is a bit of hope. In the long term, by mining better data from EHR, this will free the chart from a billing and legal document to becoming a communication artifact. The EHR will morph into some sort of sandbox where patients and providers can interact with the data in a meaningful way. What all this means, I honestly don't know but these people do, and that's why I'm very happy that they're helping lead the way in this. Um, The bottom line here, the technology exists, but it is unlikely in the short term. So this pretty much concludes my presentation. I just wanted to leave you all with some takeaways here and really just to review what we went through. So first, why is charting important? Remember, charting is important because it is the way we communicate what we are doing and what we are thinking about the patients we are caring for. It's not about getting more money for the sake of getting, well, more money, but yes, it is a tool to get reimbursed for the care we are providing, and it has value in supporting research as well as QI efforts to improve the care that we deliver tomorrow. The effort we put into optimizing our charting practices also has the ability to minimize the frequency and intensity of burnout we experience in our careers, and lastly, it can support our thought processes and aid in our defense in the case of medical legal inquiry. Next. Focus on your MDMs. If a patient is complex and you are worried about them, document it. Make sure to include review of outside records, independent historians, independent interpretations, and discussions with any other professional. And again, any other professional can include social work, the SNFs. This can include pharmacy, you name it. Um, And then lastly, you thought about it and you discussed it, but you didn't do it, document it because it still counts. And then, as we know, charting deficiencies, they're very common, but this is just a reminder to make sure to get your charts done on time. And then lastly, the future of charting. Um, Ambient listening is already available to help ease the burden of charting. Fully automated charting is possible, but unlikely in the near future. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Moss. Every day we manage considerations of dangerous things. They can even feel routine sometimes asthma exacerbation, evaluation of chest pain, psychosis, sepsis. That shouldn't devalue what we do just because we're great at it. We should document all the aspects of our decision making, who we talk to, what we reviewed, the tests and interventions we do, and the ones we consider but don't do. What were the social factors that are limiting this person from achieving their best health outcomes, and what are the considerations involved in the disposition decisions? Thankfully, today more than ever before, what we are being asked to chart is actually rather parallel to what we believe is important in clinical care. So, in truth, we can reflect the type of medicine we practice in our charting. Alex and I hope you enjoyed and valued this experience. Join us in a couple weeks for the next chapter of the show. If you can, do the deed and like, follow, and comment about our show. Peace out. Always on EM Podcast.
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.